Father in heaven, let us hear of your steadfast love in Christ, for in you we trust. Make us know the way we should go, for to you we lift up our souls. Deliver us from our enemies, O Lord, we have fled to you for refuge. So teach us to do your will, for you are our God. Let your good spirit lead us on level ground. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And then also in the back of the Psalter hymnal to the Athanasian Creed, which we're going to be considering a portion of this evening. You'll find that on page 853 in the back. I think it'll be helpful as we go along if you can make reference to that as well. So first let's read together from God's Word from Colossians chapter 1 and we're going to read together the first 20 verses. So Colossians beginning at verse 1, chapter 1, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you heard it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. And we're going to be considering again the Athanasian Creed this evening and uh, the first 20 
phrases in that creed, um, an important creed of the Christian church, but one that we don't spend as much time uh, maybe talking about. Um, but it's an important introduction for us into the doctrine of the Trinity, an important doctrine for us to understand. And as we began to look at the Trinity together, we began by laying a scriptural foundation. Uh, we always want to begin with not our creeds and confessions, but with God's word uh, from which they are drawn so that we understand properly uh, the things that we confess come as from God's word. And so we laid a, a scriptural foundation, and the scriptures clearly teach us the truth about our God, that he is one in essence, but eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as we began to think about this doctrine, we recognize that it is a mysterious doctrine, that we have to know that as we come to it. Uh, this doctrine is not one that we can fully wrap our minds around. Um, it's often joked that almost every analogy we try to make for the Trinity is some kind of ancient heresy um, because it's so hard to say it's sort of like this because it's not like anything else. Uh, God is unique. This doctrine is mysterious. As one great Reformed theologian said, this doctrine is one of the great mysteries of the faith and as such is far beyond our human comprehension. Um, just at a very basic level, if you've ever tried to explain to a child uh, what the Trinity is, uh, trying to explain three in one and one in three is not easy. Um, it's mysterious. It's, an, it's, a, it's a mysterious doctrine. We can, at best, affirm the truth of Scripture, can't hope to fully comprehend God who is himself incomprehensible. Um, but this Doctrine, while being mysterious, is still vital for God's people. Um, one of the, the dangers, I think, in going through the doctrine of the Trinity is to continue to remind us that this is not just some bare theological exercise. Um, that, you know, from time to time we have to do weighty things like this and that you all just need to sit there and take it while we go through it and then we'll return at some later date to something really important. Um, we don't want to think about that, about God's truth. God gives us these things, reveals these things to us because they are vitally important for us. Um, he wants us to know him. He wants us to know the God we worship. He wants us to have an understanding of who he is, who this God is who made us, who's called us to be part of his family who's promised to love us, protect us, care for us. He wants us to understand something about himself. And he knows that if we are left to fill in the blanks, if he doesn't explain to us clearly who he is, then we will make up who he is. We will make up a God of our own invention, a God after our own image, uh, the kind of God that people have always made in the world. Um, if we don't recognize the God in whose image we've been made, we make gods in our image. Uh, gods that are like us, weak, that cannot save us. What we want to keep returning to is that, is that reminder that a God of our own invention can't save us. A God of our own imagination can't save us. And that we are prone to idolatry to making our own kind of God and serving our own kind of God in our own kind of way. Um, and such is the nature of fallen man that we can make an idol out of almost anything. Um, one 
Reform scholar put it this way, today we pride ourselves because we no longer bow down to graven images. Idolatry, however, is by no means a thing of the past. It is just that we have grown accustomed to more sophisticated, though still ancient, forms of idolatry. The worship of money, devotion to pleasure and lusts of the flesh, the veneration of material possessions and luxury, the cult of worldly success and prestige, adoration of the state or of a political party. But these are just as much no-gods as our graven images. Man's religion is his God, that for which he lives. And if his is not the worship of the true God, it is the worship of the creature. And the worship of created things can never satisfy the deep religious need of the human heart. Indeed, it is destructive of authentic human dignity, leading as it inevitably does since man was made for communion with the true God to the degradation of society and to existence without ultimate meaning. Um, Augustine said it maybe more succinctly when he said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find the rest in thee. Um, We can't find anything else that will satisfy us. And if we go after trying to fill a God-sized hole in our heart with something else, we'll never be at rest. We'll never be safe and we'll never be saved. We need to understand the true God. The true God who's revealed himself and who can save. To not worship the creature, but worship the creator who's blessed forever. Um, That's what we want to do. Um, We want to worship him not only so that we can find satisfaction, but so that we can find salvation. Uh, We need to be saved. And as the apostles remind us in Acts chapter 4, this Jesus is the cornerstone rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So it's vital that we understand who our God truly is. And that's what the Athanasian Creed helps us to do. Um, It helps us to see who our God is, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. We want to see why that's important for us in the first uh, 20 sections or verses of this creed. We confess three persons in the one God. Um, phrase five in the creed says, for the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Now this is the part where I need to sell to you that this is vitally important for your salvation. Uh, This is the part at which people might begin to say, well, this is sort of the bare theological lecture that we don't really need. Um, Why is it important that we understand uh, these things? Well, because this is where people have often gone wrong, of compromising the deity of one of the persons of the Godhead um, at, at, at his expense and calling him less than a person or less than God. Um, And what we need to hold up is that while we do believe in one God, each person of the Trinity is also fully God in himself. That he bears all the um, attributes of God. 
that there is no essential difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all divine. They are all truly God. Um, This excludes every kind of subordination of essence, of saying one is more God than another. Um, And that's just a fancy way of saying um, God can't be more God or less God. You're either God or you're not God. And then if we say each person is God, then we're confessing something about each one. And this has come under attack in the history of the church, especially as it relates to the divinity of our Savior. Um, that there's been, a, there's been a tendency to attack the divinity of Jesus Christ. To say, yes, he's great and glorious, but he's lesser than God. Um, this is, this is a, a heresy of the ancient church. It's a heresy that's alive today. Of people who deny the full divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who say that he was high and lifted up, but not God. Uh, that was part of the Arian controversy in the ancient church. To try to say he's really high, he's, he's better than every creature, he's great, he's glorious, he's just not fully God. Um, and that's how they attacked him. And they, they would say the Son is eternally begotten from the essence of the Father. He's not a creature exactly, but he, he's not brought into being out of nothing, but he's still inferior and subordinate to the Father. That he's somewhere between God and creature. Super highly lifted up, but not God. That God the Father is God alone, that he's the fountain of deity, and the Son receives his nature from the Father by communication. But what that did was to make God the Father more God than the Son. Um, And and rightly from Scripture, faithful people came along and defended the proposition that Jesus is not less God than the Father. That the Scriptures clearly teach the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that can't be denied. Uh, That's why we read Colossians 1. It's one of those great texts that makes clear the glory of the Son. The glory of the Son as divine, right? That He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through Him and for Him. He's before all things. In Him all things hold together. Um, He's the head of the church, the firstborn from among the dead. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That He is the fullness of of the deity. He is the fullness of God in every way as divine as the Father. Um, And that's important for us uh, to confess those things. And that's why the Athanasian Creed does something that seems kind of strange to us. But it goes through and says, this is true of every person, but that there are not three of these, but one of these. So it goes through for every, every person and says, each person is uncreated. Each person has beginning in himself, exists without beginning or end, has eternally been. Each person is eternal. Each person is almighty. Each person is God. Each person is Lord. 
Um, so you, you don't say Jesus is Lord in any less of a sense than you say the Father is Lord or the Holy Spirit is Lord. Um, and what, what the catechism is, what the creed here is trying to drive home is that every person of the Trinity is God just as much as the other. All of the divine attributes are true in each person of the Trinity. Um, the, each divine person has all of those attributes of God. Uh, that we look at elsewhere, like in the Belgian Confession. Each divine person is immutable and infinite, has knowledge and wisdom and goodness and love, is holy and righteous, is sovereign and true. Um, Everything about God is true of those things. We don't separate those out. That's sometimes been what people have done as well, say that one person in the Trinity represents one kind of God in the Old Testament, and another person represents a kinder, friendlier God in the New. So that if you look in the Old Testament, you see a God who is holy and righteous and sovereign and true. But in the New Testament, you see a God who is wise and good and loving. As if, as if the God of the Old Testament is a hard God. And the God of the New Testament is a loving God. And that's to say, no, there is one God throughout all of Scripture. All of the attributes are God, of God are true of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The attributes of God are not a pie you can divide up into pieces. Or like the old trivial pursuit games where you had these little pieces in and each chip represents one of God's attributes. God is wholly loving. He is wholly just. He is wholly good. He's all of those things all at once which is a wonderful thing to think about, but beyond our comprehension to fully understand. When we begin to think about these things, the the eternalness, the immutability, all of these these big words that God never changes, um, that's exactly when we can be tempted to let our sort of eyes roll back into our heads and say, yep, this is exactly the kind of theological lecture I was afraid of. He said it wasn't going to be like this, but it is. It's turning out that way. Um... What, what is important for us to know? Why is it important for us to know that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all share these same attributes in themselves? Um, have you ever found yourself struggling to really conceive of who the Holy Spirit is? Right, Because we, we know a Father and a Son, there's at least some analogy to that. Um, But the Holy Spirit can be more difficult. Maybe you had it even harder when you were growing up and you were calling him the Holy Ghost. And you said, well, I know know what the friendly ghost is like. Um, Casper, I can understand from Saturday morning, but I'm not sure what a Holy Ghost is like. What what does that mean? Right? The the, the Spirit is hard in that sense to, to understand. You know, even, even as a pastor, I, I try to catch myself from making the mistake of ever saying, the Holy Spirit, it. You know, you, you need to say the Holy Spirit, he. But even, I think, because of the nature of the Holy Spirit, that's hard for us to comprehend what a spirit is, um, can make it difficult for us to talk this way. And so isn't it wonderful to know that even though God is so remote from us in so many ways, He's made himself understandable to us in what we've seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about 
how hard it would be to know God without Christ. Right? Think about what, what the Bible says about God. Right? That God is unknowable in himself. Right? 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16 says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. How could we know that God? He's unknowable. How could we know a God who's invisible? Right? John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God. He's invisible. He's unknowable. He's invisible. The only way to see him is to see him in Christ. And when we've seen him in Christ, we've seen him. We know what God is like then. Right? John 14, 6 through 10, what do we read? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. If we know Jesus, we know the Holy Spirit. That's how we understand who the Holy Ghost is, who the Holy Spirit is. That's how we know him because he's the Spirit of Christ. But the same way it would be impossible to know the Father apart from Jesus, it would be impossible to know the Spirit apart from Jesus. His work is not understandable to us apart from Christ. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The Spirit does marvelous things. And how would we know of that Spirit if we didn't know Jesus? Because what the Bible gloriously tells us is that Jesus is one with the Father and Jesus is one with the Spirit. And you can call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ. Um, God would be unknowable apart from Christ. Um, Martin Luther once said, if you try to see God in the face, in anywhere else than in the face of Jesus Christ, you behold only the devil. He's the only way to see God. He's the only one who makes the Father known. He's the only one who truly makes the Holy Spirit known. And it's wonderful to know that everything that's true of Him is true of the Father and is true of the Spirit. Because what have we seen of the Son in this world? One who, although He was at the right hand of the Father, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself of his glory. That took the form of a servant. That humbled himself even to death on the cross. We hear that all the time. right? We, we say that all the time. You've heard that from me several times, and I haven't even been here a year. Why do we say that again and again? To remind us that this is the kind of God we have. 
The kind of God who can be the firstborn from among the creation. The one who made all things, through whom all things were made. And he's still willing to strip down and put a towel around his waist and wash feet. Because he came to serve. Right? That we have a God who's high and lifted up and loves us the way Jesus loves us. And because we know what Jesus is like, we know what the Father is like. Because we know what Jesus is like, we know what the Spirit is like. Because we know Jesus came into the world to be a comforter and a helper, we know that the Spirit is in us to be a comforter and a helper. As strange as it can be to think about who this Holy Spirit is and what he does. When our minds go back to what Jesus came and did for his people, it clarifies for us who the Spirit is and what he does. Jesus came to help and to comfort. The Spirit is here to help and to comfort. He's come to make Jesus known to us. And when we see Jesus, we see who God is. We see the image of the invisible God. We see the reflection of who he is. As Hebrews 1 tells us, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Do you see the, the, the importance of knowing that you can say, such as the Father is, such is the Son? And such is the Holy Spirit. That all the things that are true of God are true of them, each individually. Everything you can say about any one of them, you can say about each of them. And yet, here's the glory. They are one. Right? That you say, we go, we go through the Athanasian Creed in a kind of weird way that doesn't feel very, you know, Vital in piety. I'm sure when you're feeling sort of down in the spiritual life, you don't pick up the, Apostle, the Athanasian Creed to be encouraged. Right? Um, because it seems strange to say the things that we say. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings, but there is one eternal being. So too there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, but there is one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet they are not three almighty beings, but there is one almighty being. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet they are not three lords, but one Lord. But we say it that way because that's the best we can do. To remember that each of them, what's true of each of them is true completely, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. Um, all in themselves, these things, but all together, one. Uh, it, it's, it boggles the mind. And what are the two great dangers when it comes to this kind of glorious mystery? Um, that we do what the Athanasian Creed warns us against and what heretics have done throughout the history of the church. We either divide the substance or confound the persons. 
We either make all the persons into one where they are three, or we divide up the one into three. Um, Almost all the heresies revolve around doing something like that. Either boiling the whole Godhead down to one person, um, or so dividing the, the oneness of God out that you get almost like you're talking about three gods. Um, and there's a danger in that of misunderstanding God, and it can be very difficult to understand because there's every kind of view in the world. I shared with you the, the conversation I had once with a, with a prisoner who'd, who'd been in the prison and, learned, and come to the Lord in prison and was trying to get clarity on this because he had a Muslim inmate, that told, a roommate that told him, I guess not a roommate, cellmate, that told him, you know, God is, you, you guys believe in three gods, And he said, I don't think we believe in three gods. But then he went out to try to ask questions, and he met Christians of every stripe that told him all kinds of different things. These things are important to be able to understand who our God is and to understand something of the glory and the incomprehensibility of our God. That he is three, but he is one. And that as phrase 19 says, just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, because those are all taught in Scripture. So the Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or three lords. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, This has to be the starting point for all understanding of the greatness of our God. And this has to be the starting point for understanding who our God is. And it reminds us of the glory of the God we serve. Um, You know, it can be a danger in a Reformed church that that we're very proud of our doctrine. Um, That we know things that other people don't know. That we've learned things that other people haven't learned. Um, And one of the things that we always have to keep in mind that we learn these things, we try to understand these things so that we can serve the God we learn about. We want to have a big knowledge of God because we have a big God. We have a glorious God that we want to serve. And we don't want to have small knowledge of the great God. I think every Christian has experienced that. It doesn't matter how much you know, there's always more to learn about God. We've all had that experience where, you know, someone opens your eyes to see something you've not seen before about our God, and it gives you that hunger to know more about who he is. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, after completing a course of education at a seminary or just sitting through a Bible study, the more we we get an insight into who, who our God is, the more the heart of the Christian cries out, let me know more of this God, that I might know him that I might understand him more so that I might serve him better. And isn't it ultimately the goal of all Christians to see him? Part Part of the glorious end to which we are all aiming and hoping for is to see God. Right? We love him now. We believe in him. And we try hard to read through a creed like the Athanasian Creed and hold in our mind these truths that maybe we'll kind of lost the grip on a little bit by tomorrow. But we learn about our God 
We seek to serve our God more and more because we long to know him who we will one day see. Um, we're, we're trying to learn about him, and ultimately what we hope for as Christians is, one day I'm going to see him. One day all the things that I believe about God, I'm going to see. That there's a day coming when faith will turn to sight. There's a day coming when what we hope for will be reality. Um, That's why I think when Paul talks about, you know, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love, because love is the one that never becomes obsolete. Faith becomes obsolete after a while, because faith one day will turn into sight. Hope becomes obsolete one day because everything we've hoped for becomes realized. The one thing that never becomes obsolete is love. Because when we see him and all our hopes are realized, we will love him. We will love him better than we've ever loved him in this life. We will love him as perfectly as we've been loved. We will know him even as we are fully known. Isn't that what we're hoping for? Isn't that what we're striving for as the people of God? To exchange this kind of knowledge of God for a true knowledge of God? And don't we want to know him as best as we can now? Until that day comes when we see him? Um, That's what we're hoping for. And we're reminded in Scripture that everybody who hopes this way purifies themselves even as he's pure. We work to prepare ourselves for that day when we will see the Lord. And when we see the Lord, who will we see? Who will we see when we see the Lord? We'll see the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see someone who is like us and yet high and lifted up. There's a human being in heaven who is God and who makes the living God known to us. There's a human being in heaven who is also the true and living God. That's why our ultimate hope will will still be to see Jesus, whom we've seen now by faith and who we one day will see face to face. And when we see him, we will be like him. That's why we do these things, not as a cold intellectual exercise, but to to make the cry of our hearts teach us more about this God. Right? To to do what the, the Greeks asked when they came to the disciples. You know, sir, we would see Jesus. That's what we want as God's people. That's what these creeds and confessions help us to do. To see God as he is. To, to, to discount those things that would try to picture to us a God who isn't. So that we might put our trust in the one God who is one, in essence, three in person, and is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can understand you through your son, that he has made you known to us, that to see him is to see you, and to know him is to know your spirit.
We thank you for the great blessing of that, that as, as high and lifted up as you are and far beyond our ability to comprehend that you condescended to send your son into the world that he might become like us and so that we could see him and see what God is like. That we don't have to believe in myths or tales of things far away, but that we can trust what the disciples saw and what they told us. That they saw him who was from the beginning and that they heard from him and that they saw him with their eyes and they looked upon him and they touched him with with their hands. The word of life and could testify to us that the life was made manifest and that they had seen it and they testified to it and proclaimed to us they had eternal life which was with you and was made manifest to us. We thank you that what they saw and heard they proclaimed to us so that we could have fellowship with them and fellowship with you and with your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the testimony of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his work uniting us to the one true God who is. And we fall down and worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and praise your name. Would you hear our prayers for we pray them in Jesus' name? Amen.